Well, take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the New Testament today. We're going to the book of Acts in the New Testament. And may I say, while you're turning to the book of Acts, I have missed the New Testament. We've been in the Old Testament for the last few months, and so I'm glad to be able to say to turn to the New Testament today. If you're new to your Bible, the book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. So the New Testament begins with Matthew. You've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then, um, and then the book of Acts will follow that. Has sometimes been called the fifth gospel uh, or the book of action. And we're going to go to chapter number 27. Acts chapter number 27. While you're finding your place there, let me ask you um, if your mind, if your brain works sort of like mine does. And if it does, may the Lord have mercy on you. Does this, does this ever happen to you where you get something stuck in your mind? Um, and for me, it's usually a song and it will just go on re- uh, repeat and it will just play. And I'm not joking when I tell you, I mean like all day long, it just plays over. And it's not even the whole song. It's just like one line from the song. So it's, it's extra annoying. Now, I have the blessing of being married to Tracy, and Tracy sings like an angel. And so very often I will say to her, sing me a song. And she will, in her beautiful way, sing to me a portion of a song, and it will it'll jolt that repeating line of the, of the song I don't want in there uh, out, and then I'll get to have a good song rolling around in my head for a while. Well, that happens to me literally every day. It happens to me all the time. And uh, so this week it has happened, but this week I have had two particular songs of the church going over and over in my mind. In fact, two hymns that I have been singing over and over. And I've been thinking about these hymns particularly as I have prepared to speak to you today on this uh, post-election 2020 Sunday. Now, let me acknowledge that I am certain that there are many of us uh, at Brookstone who are disappointed in the outcome of the election this week. And I'm also certain that there are many people throughout our country who, even until today, remain skeptical that the results of the election are legitimate. And of course, that will be adjudicated and in the courts and all that's going to happen. But here's what I know to be true. It is that the United States of America is in for some stormy political weather, at least for the next few weeks. We we are in for some storms. And I was thinking about this this week um, when I was with my life group. On Thursday afternoon, my life group huddled up uh, for an hour or so like we always do. And, um, and one of the guys in the life group reminded me, as we were talking about the election, of course, and one of the guys in the group reminded me of Psalm 24, verse 1, which if you don't know it, says, the earth is the Lord's, the earth and all they that dwell therein. And it was a reminder to me of the fact that we live on a, a world or in a world that is under the sovereign control of the God who made the world. And while we may or may not be surprised by the outcome of the election, I will promise you this, the God who made and who owns the world is not surprised. He is sovereign and he's in control. 
One of the hymns that speaks to that that I have been singing in my mind this week is the old hymn, uh, This Is My Father's World. Do any of you remember this? If you grew up in, in church world, you might have grown up singing this song. Um, this old hymn says, This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Amen? Man, I love that old hymn. And particularly in a season like we're in right now, it causes me to say, Lord, you really are the sovereign ruler of all of creation. That's the first song I've been singing. Um, the second song that I've been singing is another hymn that is about a hundred years old. And I've been thinking about this song because it is actually inspired by our text in, uh, in Acts chapter number 27. Uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with Acts 27, you will be after this morning because we're going to read it and talk about it in just a minute. But Acts 27 is a chapter which records a voyage a voyage across the open ocean on a wooden sailing vessel taken by the Apostle Paul and his companions and, of course, many others, 276 people, in fact, the text tells us were on board. And this voyage comes under the grip of a storm, and they are absolutely certain that this storm is going to wreck the ship and drive it to the bottom of the Mediterranean. But there's this wonderful verse in Acts 27 and verse number 8 where it talks about the difficulty of their sailing but how that they came to a place, it's on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean, they came to a place called the Fair Havens. And the Fair Havens was a, a, a port of safety. It was a port on the island of Crete where they could navigate the ship into that safe harbor called the Fair Havens and be safe from the storm. Now, do you know what old hymn I might have been thinking as a result of that passage, Acts 27, verse 8? It's the old hymn called The Haven of Rest. The church I came to Christ in when I was 16 years old was a church that sang this song often. I'd never heard it, of course, prior to that when I was a kid and came to faith. And, and suddenly I'm in this church and we begin singing this song. It says this, my soul in sad exile was out on life's See, so burdened with sin and distressed, till I heard a sweet voice saying, Make me your choice. And I entered the haven of rest. I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest. I'll sail the wild seas no more. The tempest may sweep or the wild, stormy deep. But in Jesus, I'm safe evermore. I love that. You know, when I read this passage, I can't help but think of this. This haven of Jesus Christ. I hope you've anchored your soul in Jesus. I really do. I hope that you have found that in the midst of a life where storms occur, and we'll talk about them today, storms occur personally and relationally and in our family, and the storm of sin sweeps over our lives, and the storm of addiction and a thousand other things, and even political storms happen in our land. But if you know Jesus, you've anchored your soul in him. We're going to learn about this in Acts 27, but I need to tell you, before you read the text in Acts 27, it's important that you understand the context. You need to know what's happened to bring us to the events 
that are recorded in chapter 27. Really, if you're going to understand what's happening in chapter 27, you really need to know the previous six chapters, chapters 21 to 26. Now, don't panic. I'm not going to preach all, all of those chapters But I do want to take just a minute and give you a quick snapshot. Here's what's going on. If you were to go back to Acts 21, you would see the Apostle Paul in the city of Jerusalem preaching the gospel. And because he is a former rabbi, a former Pharisee, who has now left Judaism to trust in Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, he has now become the most hated person among many of the Jewish religious leaders. And so when he's at the temple preaching about Jesus, a riot breaks out in Acts 21. Literally so violent is the crowd, the mob of people who are angry at Paul, that he is almost pulled apart limb from limb. The only way that Paul survives Acts 21 is because of the mercy of the Roman Authority. You wouldn't think that they would be merciful people, but they, they, they see the riot occurring. They sweep in, break up the riot, and they arrest Paul. Now, they don't arrest him because he was doing something wrong. They arrest him to put him in protective custody because the mob is going to kill him. And in order to keep him alive, they, they put him uh, into protective custody. Well, what happens in chapter 21 of Acts, chapter 22, 23, 24, 25 is that Paul's case, remember he's done nothing wrong, but his case gets hung up in the court system, the legal system of the Roman Empire. In the same way that it happens in court cases in our day, you know, sometimes court cases just grind to a halt and and things are not uh, uh, adjudicated as they should be. Um, Well, this happens to Paul. And so what happens is he stays in prison for two years, just waiting for his opportunity to defend his faith, and explain why he was preaching at the temple, he sits in jail for two years. And finally, after those two years, you arrive in chapter 26 of Acts. Now, Acts 26 is a famous chapter because it's where Paul gives his famous defense of the gospel in front of King Agrippa. And while you may not have known the reference of Acts 26, I'll bet most of you know the story of Paul the Apostle standing at Caesarea and preaching the gospel to King Herod Agrippa. This is the famous text where King Herod says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. In fact, Paul says to him, I wish you were, and I wish everyone here was like me, except for my chains, that you would become a Christian. Can I be the voice of Paul to you? I wish that every one of you would find life in Jesus Christ. Paul preached this at the amphitheater in Caesarea. In fact, I brought a picture of it. I'm going to put it on the screen for you just to take a look at it for a second. This is the, the, the very amphitheater where Paul stood in Acts 26 and spoke to the crowds. That amphitheater, larger at the time, it had another layer, another uh, section of uh, seating at the time, would seat seven to 8,000 people. It was in Caesarea, which was the port city entering the Holy Land. All of the ships coming from Africa, all of the ships coming from the west would port when they were coming to the eastern world at this port of Caesarea. It was a place of Roman authority in that part of the world. It was the high place of philosophy and education and military and politics. All of the movers and shakers were there, and they were all in that amphitheater when Paul stood in his chains. 
and talked about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it had changed his life. When we visit the Holy Land, that's always the first place that we start our tour because we love to think about how we can be a witness for Jesus as well. Well, he stands in that place, gives his defense of the gospel, and then uh, he is put on a ship. And it's from that amphitheater that Paul is placed on the ship that we'll read about in Acts 27, and he begins to sail for Rome, where he is going to stand before Caesar, the Roman emperor, and give a defense of the gospel of Christ. Now, there's two things you need to know about uh, Acts 27 before we read the text. Number one, you'll notice that there are two people traveling with Paul on this ship making their way to Rome. I mean, two companions of his. There are 276 people on the ship total, but there's Paul and two companions, two friends. One of them is Luke, Dr. Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts and the author of the gospel of Luke. You know that he's with Paul in this moment because when we read Acts 27, you'll see it over and over. He'll talk about we. We sailed. We disembarked. We reembarked. We were in the storm. He includes himself in the text. So he's with Paul. The second person that's uh, with him, you'll see in verse number two, his name is Aristarchus. Do you see it? Verse number two of chapter 27, there was one Aristarchus with us who was a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Uh, He was with us as well. Now, Aristarchus was also mentioned in the book of Philemon and in the book of Colossians. Aristarchus is a longtime ministry partner of Paul, and both of these men are with Paul when he endures this great trial of the storm in Acts 27. Now, here's why I tell you that. Pay attention closely to this. I want you to know that you're going to go through a storm in your life, all right? We all know this is a fact of life. We're going to go through hardships. We're going to go through storms. And you don't want to go through the storms of life by yourself. You want to have some companions, some friends that are with you who are going to go through the low places with you. Thank God for those people who are faithful to us when we go through the difficult places of life. And if you think, I don't need anybody in my life. I can do this on my own. I will keep everybody at arm's length because I've got life going the way I want it and I don't need it. Just know this, eventually a storm is going to blow into your life. And when it does, you're going to wish you'd invested in some relationships so that there would be some people there with you. If you don't have those people, begin to build those relationships now. Luke and Aristarchus were with him. The second thing that I think is important to pay attention to in the book of Acts chapter 27 is that Luke, the author gives us a lot of information about the route that they took. I love the detail with which he writes. It's very classic Lucan sort of uh, uh, methodology. He writes with great detail. There are at least a dozen references in chapter 27 to the different ports and cities and places that they they, uh, sailed to and then sailed away from. In fact, so much so that you can recreate the route. You can follow the route very easily that they sailed from Caesarea to Rome by simply reading the passage. Look at the map up on the screen. This comes straight from chapter 27. The red line is the route from which they sailed. At the bottom right-hand corner, you see Caesarea. That's where they started. And at the top uh, left-hand corner, you see Rome. That's where they ended. And this route that they took is outlined in red. Now, it's interesting to me that they didn't just start in Caesarea and make a straight shot right through the middle of the Mediterranean in the direction of Rome, but rather they sailed north and hugged the coast of what is modern-day Turkey, where you see 
uh, Lycia and Pamphylia and Cilicia. They're in Asia. That's modern-day Turkey. So they sailed along the coast. They were, they were sailing wisely, taking the protection from the winds and the storms that the land would give them. They made their way over to Crete in the middle, the island of Crete, where you see the fair havens. And then they set out from the fair havens across the open seas, the, what they called the Adriatic Sea. It's that part of the Mediterranean from Crete until they arrived at Malta. About 600 miles between those two points, from the island of Crete to the island of Malta, 600 miles. And it's in that place, in that open sea, where the storm shows up in Acts 27. And we're going to learn some really important things. Well, let's read it. You follow along. Acts chapter 27 and verse 13. Now, before I start reading, if y'all are with me after all that introduction, say amen. amen. All right, here we go. Verse number 13. And when the south wind blew gently or softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing from there, that is from the fair havens, they sailed close along the shore of Crete. But not long after they left the shore and set sail across the open ocean, not long after, there came against the ship a tempestuous wind called Eurachlodon. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Eurachlodon. Sounds like a dinosaur, but it's not. It's a storm. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain land, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat. Now, I need to stop right here for just a second and explain what that means. We had much work to do regarding the boat. Now, the boat in that verse is not the ship that they're sailing on. It's the lifeboat. If you've ever been on a cruise, you know that, that ever since the sinking of the Titanic, maritime law has required that if you put 1,000 people on a ship, there must be enough lifeboats for 1,000 people, right? You, and those lifeboats on a modern-day ship are hoisted up next to the, to the deck, and they can be boarded and then lowered down into the sea. It's not the way it was in Paul's day. In the first place, they didn't have lifeboats for everybody, right? So the only people that would have room on a lifeboat would be the crew, the captain, and the wealthier, powerful people. But the people who were like Paul, prisoners, and the poor people, they're not getting on a lifeboat. In fact, they only had one lifeboat. And it wasn't hoisted up next to the dock or the deck. It was towed behind the ship. So when it says we had much work to come by the boat, they were pulling the lifeboat into the big ship because when you're in the middle of a Eurachlodon, a storm, and you're dragging a boat behind you, guess what happens to that boat? It becomes an anchor. And so they had to get that boat emptied of its water and get it up onto the ship that they were riding in. That's what it means. We had much work uh, to get the boat in. Verse 17 says, which when they had taken the boat up, they used helps undergirding the ship and fearing lest we should fall into the quicksands or the sandbars, we struck sail and so were driven by the wind. And we, being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they, the crew, lightened the ship. They threw the cargo overboard. And the third day we cast with our own hands the tackling out of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days had appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. But after a long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have sailed from Crete 
and have gained this harm and loss. Now, stop right there for just a second. If you were to go back up to verse number 10, Paul is giving naval advice, maritime sailing advice. But guess what Paul is not? He's not a sailor, right? He's a former rabbi, former Pharisee, church planner, missionary. He's good at a lot of things, but he's not a boat guy. And they're thinking about sailing from Crete, and he says, this is not a good idea. We need to wait. If we sail now, because it was wintertime, the storms will come. It's going to be bad. We don't need to sail. Well, guess how much attention the crew and the, and the guards paid to the missionary non-boat guy? None. So they sail. They get in this storm, right? Just exactly what he said would happen. Well, when he stands up in the middle of the storm, he says to them in verse number 21, Sirs, you should have listened to me. <laughs> This is an inflammatory way to begin a conversation, right? Have you ever tried to begin a persuasive argument by saying, I told you so? Well, that's what he said. I told you we should not have sailed, but we did. But he goes on to say in verse number 22, But now I exhort you, be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but only the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve saying, do not fear, Paul, for you must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God has given you all of them that sail with you. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told to me. Howbeit, we must be cast upon a certain island. Now, this, I love Paul's optimism, right? So he says, look, don't worry, be of good cheer, we're not going to die. We are going to wreck. We are going to run aground on an island. The ship is going to be destroyed. But none of us are going to die. Verse 27 says, But when the 14th night was come, that is the 14th night in the same storm, as we were driven up and down in the Adria, that middle part of the Mediterranean, about midnight, the crew, or the shipmen, deemed that we were drawing near to some country, some land. And so they sounded the depths, found it to be 20 fathoms, that's 120 feet, when they had gone a little further, they sounded the depths again, found it to be 15 fathoms or about 90 feet. Then, fearing lest we should have fallen upon the rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern, anchored down as best they could, and wished for the day. Now, verse 30 is interesting. Verse 30 says, And as the crew, or the shipmen, were about to flee out of the ship. Stop right there. What is the greatest responsibility of the captain and crew on any boat? You Stay with the boat. You are the last man down. If this ship goes down, the captain will be the last one to go down with it. Not in verse 30. Verse 30 says the crew is sneaking out of the boat. In fact, they are pretending they've gone to the foreship, to the stern, to, to act like they were dropping an anchor. And Paul knows what they're doing. They're going to they're take that lifeboat and get away. Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers took their uh, swords, went and cut the ropes of the boat, let the lifeboat fall in. Now they were all literally in the same boat together. Verse 33, and while the day was coming on, the day was dawning, Paul besought them to take meat, have a meal, eat some bread, saying, this is the 14th day since you have tarried and you continue fasting, you've eaten nothing. Wherefore, I pray you, take some meat, for this is for your health, for there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer 
And they also took some bread. And there were in the ship 203 score and 16. That is 276 souls in total. It's an interesting passage about this storm that Paul and all of the people on this boat get hung up in. Now, I think you'll agree with me that both from the text and from our own experience, um, storms are instructive, aren't they? If you agree with that, would you go like that? Storms teach us some things. And from Paul's experience in the passage, one of the things that storms remind us of, write this down, storms remind us that you never know what a day may bring. Isn't that true? You don't know what tomorrow will bring. The Bible says in Proverbs 27, don't boast about tomorrow because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. James quotes this in the New Testament book of James when he says, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we will do this or that tomorrow. But the fact is, we don't know. And we can be living in a situation or a circumstance today where everything is just rosy. I mean, look at verse number 13. They're they're safely harbored in the fair havens on the island of Crete. They're trying to decide whether or not to strike out toward Rome across the open ocean. Paul's saying we shouldn't. The captain and the crew are saying we should. They're trying to decide what to do. And in verse number 13, it says, and when the south wind blew gently, It means that this nice, warm, southerly wind came blowing in the right direction. It was a gentle breeze. All they had to do was hoist the sails, and they would sail out of that port in this smooth and calm seas with this gentle wind driving them along the way. And verse 13 says, supposing they had obtained their purpose. Supposing this was their opportunity. It's the perfect time to sail. They struck out. It all looked great. Until verse 14, right? Have you ever lived in verse 13 so beautifully and then verse 14 happened in your life? It's exactly what happened to them. They sail away. And then verse 14 says, not long after. Yesterday it was great, but today it's not so good. Not long after they were hit by the storm. Now this this is the second thing that a storm will teach us. It is that when the storm arrives, we learn that we are not always in control of our circumstances. Now, I just need to say to you, for a guy like me and like many of you who is a control freak, this is not good news. Because we like to control our destiny. We like to manhandle the circumstances of our lives and achieve the outcome that we have determined. But the fact is, sometimes storms come in your life and you don't get to do that. Sometimes the storm determines What's going to happen in your life? Look at verse number 14. It says, not long after that, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called a Eurachlodon. Eurachlodon comes from two words which combined mean the easterly wind that causes the seas to surge. This is a particular storm that happens on the Mediterranean in the winter months as the winds come from the north. And it causes a swirling of the seas. Now, you know what they call that in the Asian world? They call it a typhoon. Do you know what we call it in the Western world? We call it a hurricane. What happened in this Eurachlodon is that this ship and its inhabitants found themselves in the middle of a hurricane. And what looked like beautiful sailing weather just the days before turned into sailing through a hurricane. Verse 15 tells us that this 
Eurachlodon caught the ship. It's the idea that it literally gripped the ship. And so suddenly the sails and the rudders could do the ship no good at all. The ship is now under the control, in the grip of the storm. It means that they couldn't navigate, that the seas were driving it. In fact, that's what verse number 18 says. They were tossed in the storm. Verse number 15 says, we let the wind take us wherever it would because we couldn't compete with it. In fact, verse 20 is one of the most picturesque verses in this passage, maybe even really in all the New Testament. Verse 20 says, and when neither sun nor stars in many days had appeared and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. I need to ask you a question this morning and I need you to answer it in your mind and your heart. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where a storm entered your life out of nowhere. It swept in, and the circumstances that had seemed so pleasant, the southerly gentle breeze was blowing in your life, and suddenly this storm arrives. For Paul, it was called a Eurachlodon. But what would you call it? What would you name your storm? Some of you might say, I would name my storm 2020. (laughs) I would name my storm COVID because COVID swept into my life like it did everybody's lives and it changed my life. I lost my job because of COVID. My finances are struggling because of COVID. I was sick with COVID, you might say. You might say somebody that I know and love died because of COVID. And we were all living our lives and suddenly... COVID struck out of nowhere. You might name your storm, not COVID, but cancer. Maybe you would say, that, that's what it was in my life. We were going along through life and everything was, was fine and wonderful and suddenly a normal checkup happened and, and there was this doctor's visit and we expected nothing and yet the call came and, and it changed everything for us. Suddenly we were in the grip of cancer and all that goes along with that. You might call your storm separation and divorce where you found yourself in a situation that you didn't intend when you got married and maybe you didn't pursue but you were handed it anyway. Maybe you would call your storm the death of someone that you loved dearly and it's gripped your life and rocked your world. Some of you would call your storm depression and anxiety And every day, depression and anxiety grips your life. Maybe you would call your storm election 2020 or divided nation. I don't know what you would call it, but here's what I do know. That while the circumstances of our storm, the particulars of our storm might be surprising, even shocking to us, the fact that we have a storm in our lives should not surprise us at all. Jesus told us we would have them, right? John 16, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Be good cheer. I've overcome the world, but it's going to happen. So while the particulars might stun us, the fact that life brings us storms shouldn't surprise us. In the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the sermon, Jesus gave these great principles for living the kingdom life. And the very last thing he said in the Sermon on the Mount was this. If you listen to what I've said in this sermon, if you listen to my words and do them, 
You'll be like the man that built his house upon the rock. And if you listen to my words and you don't do them, you'll be like the man that built his house upon the sand. But whether you build on the rock or on the sand, know this. The rain will fall, the winds will blow, the floods will rise, and whether or not your house stands will be determined by not the presence of the storm, it's going to be there, but by how you've built your life. You with me? So the fact is, storms come to all of us. And they're, they're life-changing. I could tell you some storms in my life and in Tracy's life that have changed our lives. You could tell me stories about the things that have come into your lives. And the storms change a lot of things about us. They even change us. But there are some things they don't change. Write, write this down, first of all. Here's what you need to know. That the storm doesn't change our identity in Christ. It doesn't. When the storm comes, while we might be transformed by it and our circumstance could be totally, radically changed, who we are in Jesus never, ever changes, no matter what the storm is. I love verse number 23, where Paul, in the middle of the storm, after all hope has been taken away, when they are certain they are going to die at the bottom of the Mediterranean, he says in verse number 23, here's what I know. I belong to God. I'm his servant, and I'm his. And he knew that no matter what was happening in his life, it didn't change who he was. You know, critics and circumstances try to change our names. They try to label us and, and change our identity. I mean, for Paul, Paul was, you know, this well-known Pharisee, this converted Christian, this New Testament author, this, this church planter, this beloved missionary known and beloved throughout the land. That's who he was. But on that ship, do you know what the ship and the storm tried to tell him that he was? A prisoner. You're just, all, all he was by outward appearances was a prisoner of the mighty Roman Empire and a hopeless passenger on an ill-fated ship that, as far as anybody can tell, is going to sink to the bottom of the ocean. But that's not who he really was because his identity, his identity never changed. Now, what identity has Satan tried to put on you? I mean, what, what's he tried to tattoo on your forehead or on your back or on your, across your chest? This is who you are. That's what the devil says. Loser. Three-time loser. Six-time loser. Loser too many times to count. That might be what Satan says to you. That's who you are. He might say to us, quitter, addict, ex-con, used goods, too old, too young, whatever. He tries to label us and say, these are the things that define you. Paul would have said, I'm none of those things. Paul would have said, I might be a prisoner on a ship that looks like it's going down, but those things don't define me. He said, I belong to God. I'm a child of the king. And you might say, you know, I failed too many times to count. I've been bound up in chains of addiction. I've been unfaithful too many times and unholy on too many days. But because I belong to Jesus Christ, none of those things define me. In Christ, I am justified. I am forgiven. I am holy. I am redeemed. I am right with Almighty God. That is my identity, and no storm will ever change that. Amen. The storm doesn't change 
your identity in Christ. The second thing the storm can never change is that the storm doesn't change God's plan for our lives. I love that verse number 24, Paul is alone. He gets someplace in the ship after a long abstinence. He's alone with the Lord, and he comes out, and he says, an angel stood next to me, and this is what he said to me. Look at verse number 24. He says, Paul, fear not, for you must be brought before Caesar. You must be brought before Caesar. That is God's purpose in Paul's life. You're going to make it to Rome. And for every one of those 14 days where the sun didn't shine and the stars didn't show, for every one of those two weeks in the open sea in the Mediterranean, when they were being tossed around, hanging on to to, uh, beams and posts, trying to not be thrown overboard, when that that ship was was bouncing over or or bobbing over 20-foot seas, perhaps, when men and women alike were weeping and crying and being sick over the edges of the, of the boat. And all of those days, when Paul was right in the middle of that storm, listen to me, if you listen and say amen, God never changed his mind about his purpose for Paul. He never thought twice about what Paul would end up doing for his glory. See, when you get in the storm, Satan wants you to lose sight of God's purpose for your life. He wants you to forget that God's got this design on your life, that he wants to use you for his glory. And so just like he said to Paul, I'm going to accomplish my will. I'm going to get you through the storm so that you can live out your purpose. Then that's what he would say to you and me. Which, by the way, goes to the point that God needs to have the power to be able to get us through the storm, doesn't he? It's one thing to say, I'm going to get you through the storm to your purpose, but if God doesn't have the power to do that, then it's only words. I'm glad he's got the power. And I'm glad, by the way, for the example of this in the Gospel of Matthew, two times where the storm is on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus said, peace be still, and the storm stopped. He has the power to get us through. Let me close by giving you four things. I'm going to give them to you in about three minutes. Four things that you need to do when you're in the middle of the storm. Okay? Number one, when you are in a storm, you need to believe God's promise. I love this. It's in verse number 25 where Paul says, Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told unto me. What did God say to him through the angel? You're going to survive. All the people on board are going to survive. None of you are going to die. Only the ship is going to be lost, but none of you will die. And he says in the middle of a storm when they hadn't seen the sun for two weeks, He says, we're going to make it because God said we're going to make it and I believe his promise. By the way, it wasn't the first time Paul had been told that he was going to stand before Caesar. Acts 23, when they were about to pull him apart in Jerusalem, God said, don't worry about it, Paul. You're going to stand before Caesar. I'm going to get you to Rome. He knew God would keep his word. So what you and I need to do when we're in the middle of a storm is to believe God's promise. Number two, when you're in the middle of a storm, keep your courage Three times, verse 22, verse 25, verse 36, Paul says, be of good cheer. It means take courage, cheer up. Has anybody ever said to you, cheer up, it could be worse. (laughs) And you cheered up and it got worse. That's what Paul says, cheer up, take your courage. God's going to get you through this. 
We need faith and hope and courage. And we need joy. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. When you're in the storm, believe God's promises. Number two, keep your courage. Number three, be thankful. What? Be thankful? Yeah, be thankful. Now, don't be thankful for the storm. There's not a single time in Acts 27, Paul says, God, thank you for Mr. Eulachlodon. Thank you for 20-foot seas and stormy nights. He doesn't say that. But look at verse 35. In verse 35, when they've been two weeks without seeing the sun and and this journey across 600 miles of open ocean and they're surely going to go down, he looks around at everybody on board and he says, just in the dark of the night, when they've dropped four anchors and they're afraid they're going to crash on the rocks and they can't see the shore, they... They can see nothing but blackness. Paul says, are you ready? Let's eat. (laughs) It's my guy, my kind of guy. If we're going to die, we might as well die full. No, he didn't think we were going to (laughs) die. He says, let's eat. Now, why are we going to eat? Because he says, you're going to be okay. You're going to survive and you need to be healthy. So eat some bread. I'm persuaded Paul knew they were going to have to swim to shore in the morning. And they did. You can read it later. They need a little sustenance to give them some strength. To swim. He says, let's eat. He gets the bread. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 35. When he gets the bread, he breaks it and he thanks God for it. And the Bible says in verse 35 that he gives thanks to God in front of all of these passengers. There's a powerful testimony when God's people in the midst of a storm say, Lord, thank you for your goodness to me. It's powerful. He didn't thank him for the storm, but he thanked him in the midst of what it looked like. He was losing everything. There was something he had to thank God for. And there's something you can thank God for even when the storms of life are raging. Thank him. Okay? What do I do in a storm? Believe his promises. Keep your courage. Be thankful. And then lastly, hope for the day. Hope for the day. Verse number 29 Beautiful verse says, Then fearing lest we would fall upon the rocks, they dropped down four anchors out of the stern. They anchored down as best they could in the middle of the darkness and they longed for, wished for, waited for, prayed for the morning light. Prayed for the sun to rise and a little bit of light to come through so that they could see their surroundings. Here's what I want you to do. If y'all are listening to me, say amen. When the storms come and they're going to. Some of you are in the middle of one right now. When the storms come, believe God. Be encouraged. Be grateful. And then you anchor down in Jesus and you wait for the day. You won't be able to fix everything. You won't be able to control the circumstance. But if you'll drop your anchor in Jesus and just say, one day this will all be over. The the, the circumstance will end, the the situation will change, deliverance will come, and if if none of those things happen, one day I will be with Jesus and the storm will be over. And so just wait for the day while you're anchored.